That was an inside thing. We're looking at Exodus chapter 15 today. And uh, did you get it? You think? No? Okay. There was a video I wanted to show you, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Um, and that song Brad just sang is uh, basically what we're going to be reading today. Uh, Exodus chapter 15, but I'm going to start in Colossians actually, uh, chapter 3, verse 16. And it says this, um, if you don't have a Bible, by all means, they're in the back right there. You can grab one. Uh, but I'm going to read from Colossians, and we'll spend most of our time in Exodus 15. But Colossians 3, verse 16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 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 teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, for many of us, including myself, we can handle a command that says, let the word of God dwell in you richly, but as soon as we get to the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we kind of go, hold on. And I say that because it's incredible, I think, um, how powerful music and song is, and Brad alluded to this, specifically or particularly in church, it's very polarizing. Um, churches, it, it, it's the kind of thing, I guess, that um, songs and even the singers themselves can, for better or worse, shape the identity of a church. And people will describe the kind of churches they go to based on the type of music that's there and be descriptive in that sense. And we label churches according to their music, and even churches label themselves, label their own services at times as a contemporary service. This is a traditional service. This is this kind of service. That's an out-of-touch church service. You know, whatever it is. And we really are talking about the music. That's what makes it contemporary or traditional, or they're out-of-touch. And I think it's a witness how powerful music is and how it attracts people and how it repels people. It's a witness to really what the consumer mentality that our culture has developed that many a Christian, because they are certainly part of culture, has certainly become a part of as well as they hop from church to church looking for a new experiences or a new experience. And the churches don't help because they begin to shape what they do according to the applause that they get or the silence they get as they create a church of uh, personal preference. And people have left or, or threatened to leave and complained more and even split in churches over music, perhaps more than anything else. Whether they have tambourines or don't, whether they have guitars or a pipe organ, where they sing hymns or Chris Tomlin songs, and some of you go, who the heck is that? I don't know either. But Christian music and music is this incredibly tense thing. And many of us, Brad alluded to this again, haven't a clue why we have music and singing in church at all. It's like the sermon warm-up, right? So I can get kind of going. Right? Or it's the, it's the worship time. It's the time when we worship. So when someone asks you what's your worship like, they're talking about music, right? They're talking about, well, tell, tell me about your worship. Well, I have a life of worship. We don't talk like that. We don't talk about anything else but music in particular. And for most people, their worship is that 20 minutes on a Sunday, and if they are not moved to tears or tingles, They'll blame the lights, the song choice, the instruments, the guy lifting his hands, hopping up and down next to him that's distracting them, or the fact that they didn't let Matilda play her special music during the service and her flute doesn't get to have its, you know, God-glorifying moment. That's why my worship was terrible this Sunday. If it's not, you know, already bad, in addition to all the musical experts you have that gather, I guess only musical experts gather in churches. You have a bunch of men, and I'm going to go for it, who just don't sing. You wonder why churches are so, like, feminine? It's because the men don't do anything, including sing. It's like, as attractive to, to or alluring as maybe, like, root canal work and going to the dentist, which for me is terror. And, and terrible, and 
singing to them is just this foreign thing, like I just don't do that. And we're going to read a passage today which is basically called the Song of Moses. It's Moses, who seems to be pretty manly to me, singing. It's a song that he wrote, and it's a song that he sings after he wrote it, because like anybody, Brad's got to get up here and like, I have a new song and I'm going to teach you. So imagine Moses, whether that be Charlton Heston or whatever you want to imagine, this studly guy, doesn't probably have a shotgun in his hand, but maybe, big staff at least, and he's teaching these people how to sing, sing like this. It's for, for some of us guys who go, no way and beep would I be caught dead doing that, singing to people, teaching them how to sing. I mean, you might as well turn in my manhood now because that is not something that men do. We don't sing unless I'm at a Promise Keepers event. Then maybe. <laughs> but sing in front of some. I mean, it's strange because guys will sing in the shower. I do. You sound so much better. You know, I don't know why. But sing in the shower. We'll sing in our cars. Be crying in the car, singing some music. Oh, yeah. You know, just going off. Well, you come into church and it's like you won't squeak out anything. You can silent at a mouse. Like, and the really clever guys won't come to church until the music's done. I know the sermon starts at 9.20, so I'm there at 9.21. Okay? So I'm skipping the music. Because I ain't singing. Why well, I stand there silently for 20 minutes doesn't make any sense to me. Well, you're not supposed to be silent. That's kind of the whole point. First of all, singing ain't girly. Singing's not girly. Now, for those who are fans of American Idol, there's a lot of girly singing on there. Okay? A lot of freaky singing on there. There's a lot of weird stuff singing on there. But when I talk about manly singing, and I know it's not girly because Jesus sings. In fact, He is the most manly man I can think of. He is not the the feminine portrayal that culture has given him. And this is kind of how I have assumed he is by just watching Christians and Christian artists. I hate that term. Christian artists. Okay? If we think that Jesus is like, and Moses this worship leader, and Jesus this worship leader is like the Christian artist, then he probably looks like this, a gap-dressing Horned rim glass, knit cap wearing, vitamin water drinking, repeat the same phrase 19 times singing, silver Audi driving, 100 gigabyte full of iPod sport and sideways belt buckle styling guy who puts albums out on the cover of which he's always looking away from the camera. <laughs> That's what we envision like this is, uh, this is what music is and it's weird. I, it's, yeah, I don't like it either. But Jesus is a blue collar carpenter who sang with his guys. In fact, on the night, and it's in Matthew 26, if you don't believe me, verse 30, on the night that he was to be arrested, before he went to the garden, it says this, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I never saw that verse before. He sung on the night that he was to be arrested, Right after he was betrayed, he sung with his guys. And in Hebrews 2, it pictures Jesus, and this is what it says about him in verse 10 to 13, standing in the midst of of those whom he saved, us, saying this, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. It's Jesus singing, manly singing. But see, the problem, I think, with, with our praise isn't the manliness of it necessarily or, or even what we sing. The problem with our praise, whether it be with our voice or any other part of our lives, is that we believe it begins and ends with us. We, uh, we don't worship God because we see Him as worthy and glorious and beautiful and just are in awe of Him. We're much more selfish in that. We choose to worship, I think, in hopes of getting something, if we're really honest about it. We want an experience. We, we give our time so we, don't, we feel less guilty about not giving our money, and we give our money so we feel less guilty about not giving our time. And we 
come to church on Sunday, not because we necessarily want to, but for some kind of penance for having lived like crap the whole week. I'll go to church, that'll make me better and feel better. Or we sing warm and fuzzy songs because my relationship with God feels like cardboard and I need something fluffy to make me feel better. We think it really starts and ends with us. But see, praise, genuine praise and worship wants nothing more than to get God Himself. True praise and worship is not something we manufacture where we have to, okay, let's sing this song 15 times in a chorus that is perfectly, easily singable and everything's perfect and we just sing it and so we go, oh, I'm getting them okay, I'm getting the tingles. Yes, Jesus is here. It's not what it's supposed to be about. I know, sorry, Aaron. Sorry, bro. What it is, it's not supposed to be manufactured. It's supposed to be a natural response to our hero. And this isn't unusual. C.S. Lewis talked about You see this in culture all the time. People praise and worship all the time. And he asked himself, because I like C.S. Lewis, because he was an agnostic at one point, didn't believe, and he asked really good questions that no Christian's ever asking anymore. He's like, why, 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 what kind of God would demand that we praise him? I mean, we despise guys that ask for praise. Come on, give us a praise, right? That's like abhorrent. But we fail to see that if we really are honest, we just look at, look at the world, just in our lives, outside of religion, all enjoyment, all things that we enjoy, naturally overflow into praise. It always does. Lovers, they praise each other. If I get to the point where I'm praising my wife because I have to, you've lost. You look good, babe. I keep telling myself that. Right? But if I truly enjoy her, truly know her, it's naturally going to do that. Readers, they praise their favorite books. Oh, I love that book. So good. Right? Hikers. Oh, man, you've been on that hike? It's amazing. You've been up to Piltuck? It's so short, but it's beautiful when you get up there. Sports fans. I mean, come on. Yeah! I mean, I watched the Super Bowl. It was me and Todd and Aaron Perez. And we're just like, Rah! I didn't know what I was saying. But I was praising something. And then sorrow at the end. But for that moment, I was excited. I wasn't like, hey guys, we should probably praise now. We should probably confess our joy at this moment. Right? I just was like, whoa, yeah! I remember the day that I found out I was having a son. I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah! I wasn't like, hmm, this would probably be an appropriate response for having my joy expressed. I didn't think that. It just came out. Brilliant people praise brilliant TV shows like Lost when they see it and go, my goodness, the writing is amazing! Right? That's what I do. I do. But men and women spontaneously praise whatever they value. Whatever they love. Wasn't it awesome? So glorious, so beautiful. And C.S. Lewis said that their praise is not merely expressing enjoyment. It in fact completes it. It completes it. And praise, he says, almost seems to be inner health made audible. So my prayer then today is not that uh, we enjoy necessarily, although I love what Brad does, that we enjoy the singing or pick the best songs or have the best bands or whatever, but that we understand that uh, our Savior would become so in love with God that we can't help but praise Him with our voices and in our lives like Moses does. So we're going to read Moses' song. And it's a whole, it's not, it's most of the chapter, but it's the first few verses in Exodus 15. And I'll read it to you, and then we'll really break it down and see what it says. Exodus 15, just crossed the Red Sea, and Moses kicks it with a tambourine. 
It says this, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. You'll notice these are the words that Brad sung, of which there isn't a song that exists for that, except the one that Moses wrote. And Brad is pulling a little thing out of his hat, which is pretty awesome. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. And the floods covered them, and they went down in the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. And the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil by my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have, you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength, your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they have trembled. Pangs have seized the, seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. And you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which you have, your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And we'll stop there. So the song that's recorded in Exodus 15 has a couple different names. It's called the Song of Moses. Later you'll see it's called the Song of Miriam. It's called the Song of the Sea. I like to call it the Song of Jesus. And we'll see why that is later. But the song is probably the earliest thing that Moses wrote. He probably wrote most of the Exodus and stuff in perhaps the, the later years of his life, but most likely this song, because of when it happened, was written the moment he crossed the sea, so it could possibly be the first thing that he wrote. And it is certainly the first recorded poem or song in the Bible. And as Moses sees, you can imagine this, as Moses sees these dead bodies, this open sea and these dead bodies floating of all, and it's, it's a lot of men. All these men who are dead. The destruction that God brought in the most miraculous and amazing way possible. And then he turns and he sees nearly two million people looking at him and seeing the same thing. Men and women and children and cattle and stuff. And the first response he has is to sing song to God. Just then. Then he sung. And it was a song to God. I mean, how many times do we come into a church or a service and just join in the singing? Like, and you start kind of going with wherever they're at without ever asking what we're actually doing. I love that someone asked Brad, why do we sing in church? Great question. Someone's actually thinking about, what are we doing? I mean, how many times do we just read the words when we sing, or just recite them like karaoke? It's kind of like, like a robot. Praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. What did I just say? I mean, I wonder what happened. Like, praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Satan, praise Jesus, praise Whoa, wait a second. We could just slip in there without someone even knowing and just sing along because you think that's what's, being, what's supposed to be done. But Moses' response is not contrived. He's not obligated. He's not even commanded to do this. Moses simply responds. And God said, when I take my people out, they'll become worshipers. I'm taking them out to serve me, and Moses begins to do that, not because he's trying to, because it's his natural response to what God has done. 
And what's his song? I love what verse 2 says. Verse 2 says, the Lord is his song. God himself is what he sings. And the entire Exodus is a response or an answer to the question who Pharaoh said, who is this God? Why should I listen to him? And God said, this is my name. And the series of judgments and the series of, of afflictions is a declaration of God's name. And in Exodus 34, Moses is up on the mountain talking to God and he says, show me yourself. He's like, I'll show you myself. And he puts him in the rock and he walks by and he declares his name. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers for the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I mean, think about all the songs you've ever heard in church, or that you hear at all, or on the safe station, right? Music for the whole family. And think about how many of those songs where the Lord is not the song, but man actually is? I mean, how many times are we singing about me, us, what I'm going to do, versus what God's done? I mean, how many of these songs are so ambiguous in what they're saying that the only reason you assume they're about God is because it has some Christian artist label on it? Must be good. Must be about God. Because he's a Christian, right? I mean, how many of those touchy-feely, good old-fashioned, emo-style songs could you actually just replace or substitute some man for what's being said? I I, I went and looked at some of the more popular church songs last year. I think I got like one of the top five. And here's one of the choruses in it. Tell me who you could say this about. It's been so long since you felt like you were loved. So what went wrong? But you know there's a place where you belong here in my arms. Nothing wrong with those words. Absolutely nothing. I know that a lot of, like Brad will say, well, there's a difference between a praise song and a worship song. Okay, whatever, okay? I don't know if people delineate like that. What I know is that I could say to my wife, baby, there's a place you belong in my arms. And I ain't talking about God. And we sing stuff like that all the time. To praise God. I'm like, wait, whoa, I understand. Whoa, hold on. What am I saying? What am I saying? Now I'm singing for God? As God? It seems that songs and singing and praise is to be less about making myself feel good and more of a response about or to what God does or how he already feels about us, demonstrated in what he did. And unless you sing some of these songs that we sing 15 times in a row, I don't think that the praise songs that are designed to generate are supposed to be generate some emotional experience as much as they're supposed to be a confession to God of God. That's what it's supposed to be. And Moses does that. So here's the content of the song. You look at the content of the song, it really is the beginning, and he has this big chunk from verses 4 to 10. And Moses' song is filled with acts of what God has done, implying that basically the people did nothing. And we know that because right before they went across, Moses is like, dude, shut up, be silent, let God fight. So they do nothing, except complain, and then are silent when they're told to be. And so as they're silent, God fought for them, it says in this song, like a warrior. And in in terms of salvation, we are not warriors. I mean, there's warrior language used in the Bible. We've got swords and armor, but one thing we have to kind of remember is that we're not like next to God going, yeah, let's do it. We are the damsels in distress, okay? We are the princesses. I know it's hard for a guy to think about that. But you are the helpless, hopeless princess sitting in the castle waiting to be rescued. 
You are the citizen in distress waiting for Superman to come or all is going to be destroyed. And Moses shows us, though, that that God is not like a Superman or Captain America that comes and no one ever dies, right? Comes, I'm Superman, I'm here. Let's the bad guy monologue for a long time. And then he is, plans are foiled, but he flies off and is okay. He is, according to Moses, God is the judge and the executioner. He is also the hero who saves, but he's also the one who judges. And Moses shows us that We must sing and praise and glorify the God of the Bible, the God of history, the God as He has chosen to reveal Himself, not the God of our imaginations of what we want Him to be. Because many of us want to praise these kind of pieces of God that won't upset us emotionally. We should only sing songs that are, you know, joyful, lovey stuff. That's not how Moses sings his first song. Because what happens when you're only doing the lovey-dovey stuff, which is nothing wrong, I need an occasional lovey-dovey song. But if you're only doing that, what you end up doing is worshiping some false, untrustworthy, capricious, fluffy, cruel God that has nothing to do with the true God of the Bible. Praise songs to God that emphasize our unbiblical vision of God or an unbiblical vision of God is nothing less than idolatry because idolatry, you're just rooting your singing in the image of what I think he's like. And he's just like me. And people don't end up rooting their understanding of God in the Scripture, in the Word of God. They'll invariably start saying, well, I'm not going to worship a God that's like this. I don't like a God that's like this. I don't know if I can love a God that's like this. That's God. Take him or leave him. That's God. He gets to dictate who He is and reveal who He is, not you and I. In the case of Exodus, and this is difficult for people, Moses sings a song to, and we also praise a God who gets mad. A God who smashes His enemies. A God who is just and righteous in doing so. God is a warrior who enters our slavery, destroys our oppressor, and then sings praise songs about it. That's the God of the Bible. I mean, check it out what he says. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. We have a furious God. Furious at evil. Never forget that God's plan for this entire world is to remove all evil from it. All sin from it. He does not want sin in the camp, and he is going to destroy it. So we can't declare God's name if it's different than how he has declared it. We don't rename him, although we certainly try, thinking he's just, he's just soft-hearted and always forever tolerant. He is very patient, very patient. But the God also says that his patience comes to an end. So I wrote a song. I didn't write. I wrote a chorus, I should say. I'm not like Brad. I can't write songs. But I think that here's what people would rather sing instead of the song of Moses, where you're like, they were killed, they were destroyed, they sunk like a stone. And I don't be, be flipping like that. That's what happened. But I think they'd rather have this. And think about this song. God, I love you for loving me. You love me, and so God, I love you. You showed me how to get out of a bad place. You help me get out of the sad place. God, I love you for saving me. You saved me, and so, God, I love you. Nothing wrong with that song. It's very true, but it certainly doesn't talk about anything more than my love for God. I love you. I love you. Thank you for moving from that bad place without being specific of what that bad place was. 
See, the song isn't uh, nearly as powerful if Moses only talks about the fact that they're on the other side of the sea. Grace is only amazing if we recognize and confess the darkness that we were in, the darkness that we were stuck in and enslaved to, the darkness that we, if we were left to ourselves, would like to go back to. Many of us look back and go, man, that sure was fun. Knowing the darkness, knowing the pain it caused. That's what God saves us from. Grace is not amazing unless you recognize, like the song says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. You've got to hit the wretch really hard. We like to sing past it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wretch like me. You want to look up wretch? It ain't pleasant. But that guy who sang that song knew exactly the darkness he was pulled out of, which was a slave captain. Captain of a ship that would take slaves to the new world. But again, our refusal to, I think, worship God and His fury is about our feelings. Because if God is furious at sin, if He's furious and doesn't like badness, well then He may not like me because I've done bad stuff. But the beauty of it is we're, if you are the one who's accepted Christ as Savior, you're the one on the other side of the sea. And you can sing that song. So we can sing a song about how sweet Jesus is or... Repeat choruses like, I will sing to the Lord. But the question I always want to go back to is, why? Why is Jesus sweet? Why are we singing to the Lord? Praise Jesus. I'm sinless. So what? Thank Jesus for dying on the cross. Why do you have to do that? Praise God that Jesus rose from the dead. To do what? When we sing these things over and over again, we have to preach the entire gospel. The gospel that says, I am broken. I cannot fix myself. I want darkness, not light. It is going to kill me. I'm running away from God. And He came and said, enough. I'm going to send my Son. He's going to take your place. Pay the debt that you owe. Die on the cross to pay for your sins. And I'm going to give you this glorious sinless life that is my son free. Accept it. And I'm going to die, bury all that old sin, all the problems, past, present, and future that you're going to do. I'm going to raise you from the dead a new life to live for me. That, that is the song we sing. And if you only take a piece of it, you forget all of it. If you're only talking about being on the other side of the sea, you forget about all the slavery that you were in and what you were saved from. So in verse 11 and 12, it says that there's no God like you. Now, Paul talks about 1 Corinthians 8. There's lots of gods everywhere. He says so-called gods. Everyone's got their gods and their idols. Some are very, you know, you have your very religious gods like Allah. Then you have people who have all their kinds of idols that they worship and, and sacrifice for. The true fact is that there's only one true God. And this God that Moses praises and as do we, is like no other. See, all of their songs, if you think about that, if we think of songs in the sense of just an expression of, of our enjoyment in our life, all of their songs to other gods are what we can do to please this God. What we can do to make them happy or not tick them off. They're all very man-centered. There are many songs being sung, all of which the core is to praise the Savior of the month, whatever that happens to be. But here's why. Well, I should say the one true God is not like these false gods. Moses' God, as he is our God, did not leave us to figure out how to fix ourselves. He didn't leave us in slavery by ourselves and say, free yourself, just do it. Come on. Show some gumption. He came down and he freed us. Check out this verse. Psalm 41 says this. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. And he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock and made my steps secure. 
He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This is why I'm a Calvinist. Because I believe in a God who can command me to have feelings that, for the moment, I don't have. Rejoice in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Praise the Lord. But there are times I go, I don't want to do that. Anytime I sin, I'm doing that, right? But I believe in a God who can command me to feel. Because He can command me to sing. He can command me to praise. Because He puts the song, the psalm says, in my mouth to praise. I ain't making it up. I express the very thing that He has done in my soul. So even if I don't feel like it, I pray that I will because I know He is the one that can shape that and change that. I can't change it. But He certainly can. It's a song that's intended as well for us to not sing by ourselves. Moses sings it, writes it, and he sings it with all of Israel. Whoa. Sings it with this community, right? Because God has not only brought you and I or the individuals across the sea, He brought an us. And people know what the kingdom is like by what this people look like, and it's not a very good witness all the time. But God led us into a holy place together, and there is something amazing, as emotional as it's going to sound, there's something amazing about coming into a place and singing together. Because you don't get that experience anywhere else, really. You might sing in the car, you're 99 bottles of beer on the wall, whatever you do. But ultimately, when you come together as a group, there are very few, if any, places we gather and in one voice sing the same thing together. And it's awesome. But not if we don't sing. And this is not a sermon to get people to sing more, although I wish you would. But without question, we are talking about the core of who we are as people. And if we don't sing, if we're not expressing our praise and our joy, the question is, where's your heart? If you're more concerned about what other people think, but how you can sound, first of all, sit by me and you'll feel great, but if you're more concerned about what you're going to sound like, this is stupid, where's your soul? What are you thinking when you walk out of here and everyone else's approval? Who are you living for, Really? When it comes down to every aspect of your life, whose approval are you living for? Are you more scared of what people will say, think, do, whatever, or of God? Do you revere the opinions of other people so much so that it overwhelms even the opinions of God? So we come into a community together because we have this common identity, and we sing together, and we praise together, so that we go out and live in community together. But if you can't even get together and sing a song to your God, about your God, in unison, how do you ever expect to go out and do anything unified out there? I always, so many churches are like always attacking each other and making fun of each other, and Christians this, Christians that, that guy's not a Christian. It's like, man, a little bit of unity would be a, go a long way. We get into the last part here, 14 through 18. As they sing about what God has done, that also includes a statement about what God's going to do. They're singing, and part of the song is a declaration of all these other people. So the peoples have heard, they've trembled, they're scared. Terror and dread fall upon these people. And it names all of these nations that they're going to go through. And in the song, Moses tries to teach Israel and us to look at all circumstances from God's perspective, because none of these things have happened yet. It's very unlikely that as Edom and Moab, these great nations, have heard about Israel being released, that they're really scared in any way of these group of slaves that are coming with their pitchforks. They're probably not fearful, but God tries to give them a picture of something larger to say, yeah, you're going you're gonna to meet some obstacles, but you need to understand something that the battle is already won. The war is always already over. There never really is, although it might appear like to be, a struggle. 
God has made certain promises, and the end, I've read the book, but the end is clear, and the end is sure, and the end is going to happen, despite what we might see. Regardless of what it looks like, regardless of how much men resist, or how dark the world gets, the Lord laughs at the efforts of men to stop his redemptive power. The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. And he's already won it. And as we look at this point of view, because we have these people moving, and this is key, that we are to gather gather together and sing with one voice, and that one voice, in this sense, causes fear to those people. But you can imagine Israel as they begin to sing the song, all right, and they kind of look around like, this is a pretty nice place right here. You know, why, why do we need to go over there? I mean, we could just get together every so often and start singing in this spot and put our tents up here and just kind of be comfortable. I mean, let's just do church right here. Let's do church. We have our ceremonies God gave us. We've got some songs now. All we need is like a children's ministry and a bulletin and we're good. We'll do church. But God told them a long time ago that this isn't where they were supposed to be. They were supposed to move. And it wasn't just to get to the promised land. He promised back to Abraham in Genesis, way back in Genesis 12, that I am blessing you and taking your people into Egypt so that you might bless the world. There's a larger picture here, not just Israel. They are what amounts to ascent people. They are still moving. They have been brought together as a nation. They've been brought together as a church, but they're still moving. They still have something to do. If their lives are just about gathering together on Sundays to sing songs about what God has done for the same people to hear every single week, they've lost sight of their larger purpose. They sing a song confessing who God is, not just for themselves, but for God. And they're no different than us. Because we are not to get comfortable gathering together on our Sunday morning, singing our songs to God, even if we sing the right songs. And my fear is that this church and a lot of other churches have. Because it's really comfortable to get together. Hey, we got community. We got togetherness. We got good songs and good music, and we'll see you here next Sunday. Forgetting that we have a journey that we're still on, a mission that is not complete. And as we journey, we're going to meet, as he sings here, obstacles and conflicts. And it will be very tempting to say, hey, let's just stay here now. That's a really big risk out there. We're not going to keep moving. I mean, look, we got the school. We got really comfy black chairs. We got a keyboard. I mean, let's not push it any further. Let's just let's just stay here. Let's keep the church small. And I, maybe the church is supposed to be this size. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying, you can never lose sight of the fact that we have a larger mission here. And maybe it's to send someone up to Mount Vernon. I don't know what it is. But the moment you start getting comfy and saying, we got our songs, the songs aren't intended just to stay in here. That's the point. They're supposed to be loud enough for everyone to hear. At the very end of verse 19 to 21, says, For when the horses of Pharaoh, it's a little bit of a prose summary of everything he just read. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. That was the summary of the whole song. But in verse 20, Miriam comes in. This is Moses' sister, older sister. The Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron and Moses, took a tambourine in her hand. See, you can have tambourines, Brad. Tambourine in her hand. Big one that says, like, I love Jesus with some ribbons. I will totally play it, dude. Took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after with tambourines and dancing. 
And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So at the end of the song, Miriam starts singing again. And she repeats the same lines that the, that the song starts with, kind of implying that she probably taught the entire song to these women. And the song is continued to be taught to the next generation, the next generation. And it's the same song about what God has done. And if you look at the beginning and the end of the song that she probably taught in the song Moses wrote, you have two lines. First line says, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown to the sea, which she sings. And the last line of the song says, The Lord will reign forever and ever. Now, think about if your, your life is going to be described as a song and if you've got some bookends on that baby. The Lord, sing to him for his triumph gloriously. The Lord will reign forever. Does our life song, if we have a life song, does the rhythm of our life, the beat of our life, the melody of our life begin and end like that? No matter what happens in between, all the crap and chaos of this broken world, your sins and the sins that people have committed against you, God has triumphed victoriously. I will sing to Him, the Lord reigns. Those are the bookends. Nothing else can shake you. Nothing can shake you. Does my song remind me of what God has done and trust in the fact of what He's going to do? Is the fact, the fact that God is a warrior, that God is a king, move me to sing? Or am I not moved to sing at all? And my question then is, well, who really is the king in your life? The Song of Moses shows up in one final place, and that's the book of Revelation. It's kind of strange. Actually, I found several songs that Moses wrote. He was quite the artist. But the book of Revelation's kind of gotten some bad press in, in, well, for many years because it ends up being this book of mystery and someone takes one verse and makes out to be like Bill Clinton's The Devil and something weird on it. and It just gets kind of spooky. But the book itself is very um, amazing. People focus so much on it being a book of the end times and this is how the world's going to end and there's a lot of truth in that, but I actually believe that the book in and of itself, if we say it, it's our end, in that this is where the, the, the church ultimately in the New Testament is headed, the church that God started in Israel. Remember, God released Israel that becomes the church, but He released Israel to serve and worship God. And so, if we say this is the end of all things, I think the book is probably more accurately viewed as a book of worship than it is just end times freaky mystery. Why do I know that? It's because the Song of Moses is sung again in Revelation 15. Exodus 15, Revelation? No, there's no connection. But in Revelation 15, it says this. And they sing the Song of Moses, the servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb, saying. This is the people in the end singing with God. Singing the same song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, so it's really the song of Jesus. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. I see no eyes in there. It's all about God. Praising God for who He is, is not a means to an end. According to the book of Revelation, when all is said and done, it's an end in itself. It is the thing we were designed to do. And as I said before, we go, well, God, what kind of God would ask you to praise? The kind of God that saves you, redeems you, transforms you so that you get so much joy that your expression of praise is your natural response. And I would say that if your life feels spiritually dead, if you 
don't have any sense of direction, meaning, purpose, and hope, has nothing to do with the environment that you built around yourself in terms of the songs you sing or whatever else you fill your life with to make you feel emotionally filled up. It has to do with the fact that you have not faced your God face-to-face and recognized what happened on the cross to save you from your death. That's what it is. And we celebrate every Sunday to remind ourselves of the most important truth, the truth that binds together as a community, the truth that we go out on mission to tell people has nothing to do with music or you know, wonderful moral learnings. It has to do with the fact that I am a sinner, I am broken, I rebelled against the God that gave me everything and created a perfect world for me. And I said, up yours. I'm going to do it my own way. And he didn't say, really, poof, gone, which he had full right to do. But because he loved me, because he wants relationship and doesn't need it, mind you, he sends his son to make a way to be with him again. We break the bread and we dip in the wine to declare that fact alone as the most important thing, that I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. And that fact in itself is life transforming. And it's a mystery how it is transforming. And I'm not going to try to persuade anyone to believe it because it's a foolish, foolish story and I believe it with all of my heart because he has put a new song in my soul. And I pray that he does the same for you. And for those people who don't or do know him, or pretended to be singing for him, time to do some reflection. I pray the Spirit will put a new song in your heart again. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for saving me. Lord, you are glorious and powerful. You are almighty and strong. You are faithful and loving. You are forgiving You cleanse me from my sin, Lord. You are forever patient and glorious. And I pray that the song that I sing, Father, will worship Your greatness. It will not focus on what I have done or have not done, Lord, but on what You have done through Your Son, Jesus. Help us to express our praise to You, Father, whether it be our praise and worship through our hands, through our feet, or through our voices. May You receive glory. For you alone are the most glorious, and in glorifying you, God, I selfishly obtain joy. Thank you, God. In your son's name, amen.